Section 88 of Mark Twain, A Biography, Volume 2. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mark Twain, A Biography, by Albert Bigelow Payne. Chapter 192, Following the Equator. Mark Twain himself has written with great fullness the story of that traveling, setting down what happened, and mainly as it happened, with all the wonderful description, charm, and color of which he was so great a master. We need do little more than summarize, then, adding a touch here and there, perhaps, from another point of view. They had expected to stop at the Sandwich Islands, but when they arrived in the roadstead of Honolulu, word came that cholera had broken out, and many were dying daily. They could not land. It was a double disappointment. Not only were the lectures lost, but Clemens had long looked forward to revisiting the islands he had so loved in the days of his youth. There was nothing for them to do but to sit on the decks in the shade of the awnings and look at the distant shore. In his book he says, We lay in luminous blue water. Shoreward the water was green, green and brilliant. At the shore itself it broke in a long white ruffle, and with no crash, no sound that we could hear. The town was buried under a mat of foliage that looked like a cushion of moss. The silky mountains were clothed in soft, rich splendors of melting color, and some of the cliffs were veiled in slanting mists. I recognized it all. It was just as I had seen it long before, with nothing of its beauty lost, nothing of its charm wanting. In his notebook he wrote, If I might, I would go ashore and never leave. This was the 31st of August. Two days later they were off again, sailing over the serene Pacific, bearing to the southwest, for Australia. They crossed the equator, which he says was wisely put where it is, because if it had been run through Europe all the kings would have tried to grab it. They crossed it September 6th, and he notes that Clara kodak it. A day or two later the North Star disappeared behind them, and the constellation of the cross came into view above the southern horizon. Then presently they were among the islands of the southern Pacific and landed for a little time on one of the Fiji group. They had twenty-four days of halcyon voyaging between Vancouver and Sydney, with only one rough day. A ship's passengers get closely acquainted on a trip of that length and character. They mingle in all sorts of diversions to while away the time, and at the end have become like friends of many years. On the night of September 15th, a night so dark that from the ship's deck one could not see the water, schools of porpoises surrounded the ship, setting the water alive with phosphorescent splendors. Like glorified serpents, thirty to fifty feet long, every curve of the tapering long body perfect, the whole snake dazzlingly illumined. It was a weird sight to see this sparkling ghost come suddenly flashing along out of the solid gloom and stream past like a meteor. 
They were in Sydney next morning, September 16, 1895, and landed in a pouring rain, the breaking up of a fierce drought. Clemens announced that he had brought Australia good fortune, and should expect something in return. Mr. Smythe was ready for them, and there was no time lost in getting to work. All Australia was ready for them, in fact, and nowhere in their own country were they more lavishly and royally received than in that far-away Pacific continent. Crowded houses, ovations, and gorgeous entertainment, public and private, were the fashion, and a little more than two weeks after arrival Clemens was able to send back another $2,000 to apply on his debts. But he had hard luck, too, for another carbuncle developed at Melbourne and kept him laid up for nearly a week. When he was able to go before an audience again, he said, The doctor says I am on the verge of being a sick man. Well, that may be true enough while I am lying abed all day trying to persuade his cantankerous rebellious medicines to agree with each other but when i come out at night and get a welcome like this i feel as young and healthy as anybody and as to being on the verge of being a sick man i don't take any stock in that i have been on the verge of being an angel all my life but it's never happened yet in his book clemens has told us his joy in australia his interest in the perishing native tribes in the wonderfully governed cities in the gold mines and in the advanced industries the climate he thought superb a darling climate he says in a notebook entry Perhaps one ought to give a little idea of the character of his entertainment. His readings were mainly from his earlier books, Roughing It and Innocence Abroad, the story of the dead man which, as a boy, he had discovered in his father's office was one that he often told, and the Mexican plug and his meeting with Artemis Ward, and the story of Jim Blaine's old ram. Now and again he gave chapters from Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer, he was likely to finish with that old fireside tale of his early childhood, The Golden Arm. But he sometimes told the watermelon story, written for Mrs. Rogers, or gave extracts from Adam's diary, varying his program a good deal as he went along, and changing it entirely where he appeared twice in one city. Mrs. Clemens and Clara, as often as they had heard him, generally went when the hour of entertainment came. They enjoyed seeing his triumph with the different audiences, watching the effect of his subtle art. One story, The Golden Arm, had in it a pause, an effective, delicate pause, which must be timed to the fraction of a second in order to realize its full value. Somewhere before we have stated that no one better than Mark Twain knew the value of a pause. Mrs. Clemens and Clara were willing to go night after night and hear that tale time and again for its effect on each new audience. From Australia to New Zealand, where Clemens had his third persistent carbuncle, in following the equator the author says, the dictionary says a carbuncle is a kind of jewel. Humor is out of place in a dictionary. 
and again lost time in consequence. It was while he was in bed with this distressing ailment that he wrote Twitchell, I think it was a good stroke of luck that knocked me on my back here at Napier instead of in some hotel in the center of a noisy city. Here we have the smooth and placidly complaining sea at our door, with nothing between us and it but twenty yards of shingle, and hardly a suggestion of life in that space to mar it or to make a noise. Away down here, fifty-five degrees south of the equator, this sea seems to murmur in an unfamiliar tongue, a foreign tongue, a tongue bred among the ice-fields of the Antarctic, a murmur with a note of melancholy in it proper to the vast unvisited solitudes it has come from. It was very delicious and solacing to wake in the night and find it still pulsing there. I wish you were here. Land, but it would be fine. Mrs. Clemens and himself both had birthdays in New Zealand. Clemens turned sixty, and his wife passed the half-century mark. I do not like it one single bit, she wrote to her sister. Fifty years old, think of it. That seems very far on. And Clemens wrote, Day before yesterday was Livy's birthday, underworld time and to-morrow will be mine. I shall be sixty. No thanks for it. From New Zealand back to Australia, and then with the new year away to Ceylon. Here they were in the Orient at last, the land of color, enchantment, and gentle races. Clemens was ill with a heavy cold when they arrived, and in fact at no time during this long journeying was his health as good as that of his companions. The papers usually spoke of him as looking frail, and he was continually warned that he must not remain in India until the time of the great heat. He was so determined to work, however, and working was so profitable, that he seldom spared himself. He traveled up and down and back and forth the length and breadth of India, from Bombay to Allahabad, to Benares, to Calcutta, to Darjeeling, to Lahore, to Lucknow, to Delhi, old cities of romance, and to Jaipur, through the heat and dust on poor, comfortless railways, fighting his battle and enjoying it too, for he reveled in that amazing land, its gorgeous, swarming life, the patience and gentleness of its servitude, its splendid pageantry, the magic of its architecture, the maze and mystery of its religions the wonder of its ageless story. One railway trip he enjoyed, a thirty-five-mile flight down the steep mountain of Darjeeling in a little canopied hand-car. In his book he says, That was the most enjoyable time I have spent in the earth, for rousing, tingling, rapturous pleasure there is no holiday trip that approaches the bird flight down the Himalayas in a hand-car. It has no fault, no blemish, 
no lack, except that there are only thirty-five miles of it instead of five hundred. Mark Twain found India all that Rudyard Kipling had painted it, and more. India the Marvelous, he printed in his notebook in large capitals, as an effort to picture his thought, and in his book he wrote, so far as I am able to judge, nothing has been left undone, either by man or nature, to make India the most extraordinary country that the sun visits on its rounds, where every prospect pleases, and only man is vile. Marvelous India is, certainly and he saw it all to the best advantage, for government official and native grandee spared no effort to do honor to his party, to make their visit something to be remembered for a lifetime. It was all very gratifying, and most of it of extraordinary interest. There are not many visitors who get to see the inner household of a native prince of India, and the letter which Mark Twain wrote to Kumar Sri Samachinji, a prince of the Palitana state at Bombay, gives us a notion of how his unostentatious, even if lavish, hospitality was appreciated. Dear Kumar Sahib, it would be hard for me to put into words how much my family and I enjoyed our visit to your hospitable house. It was our first glimpse of the home of an eastern prince, and the charm of it the grace and beauty and dignity of it realized to us the pictures which we had long ago gathered from books of travel and oriental tales we shall not forget that happy experience nor your kind courtesies to us nor those of her highness to my wife and daughter we shall keep always the portrait and the beautiful things you gave us, and as long as we live a glance at them will bring your house and its life and its sumptuous belongings and rich harmonies of color instantly across the years and the oceans, and we shall see them again, and how welcome they will be. We make our salutation to your highness and to all members of your family, including with affectionate regard that littlest little sprite of a princess, and I beg to sign myself sincerely yours, S. L. Clemens, Benares, February 5th, 1896. They had been entertained in truly royal fashion by Prince Kumar, who, after refreshments, had ordered the bales of rich stuffs in the true Arabian Nights fashion, and commanded his servants to open them and allow his guests to select for themselves. With the possible exception of General Grant's long trip in 78 and 79, there has hardly been a more royal progress than Mark Twain's trip around the world. Everywhere they were overwhelmed with honors and invitations, and their gifts became so many that Mrs. Clemens wrote she did not see how they were going to carry them all. In a sense it was like the Grant trip, 
for it was a tribute which the nations paid not only to a beloved personality but to the american character and people the story of that east indian sojourn alone would fill a large book and mark twain in his own way has written that book in the second volume of following the equator an informing absorbing and enchanting story of indian travel clemens lectured everywhere to jammed houses which were rather less profitable than in australia because in india the houses were not built for such audiences as he could command he had to lecture three times in calcutta and then many people were turned away at one place however his hall was large enough this was in the great hall of the palace where durbers are held at bombay altogether they were two months in india and then about the middle of march an english physician at jaipur warned them to fly for calcutta and get out of the country immediately before the real heat set in they sailed toward the end of march touched at madras and again at ceylon remaining a day or two at colombo and then away to sea again across the indian ocean on one of those long peaceful eventless tropic voyages where at night one steeps on deck and in daytime wears the whitest and lightest garments and cares to do little more than sit drowsily in a steamer chair and read and doze and dream from the notebook here in the wastes of the indian ocean just under the equator the sea is blue the motion gentle the sunshine brilliant the broad decks with their grouped companies of talking reading or game-playing folk suggestive of a big summer hotel but outside of the ship is no life visible but the occasional flash of a flying fish i would like the voyage under these conditions to continue forever the injun ocean sits and smiles so soft so bright so bloomin blue there aren't a wave for miles and miles except the jiggle of the screw kip how curiously unanecdotical the colonials and the ship-going english are i believe i haven't told an anecdote or heard one since i left america but americans when grouped drop into anecdotes as soon as they get a little acquainted preserve your illusions when they are gone you may still exist but not live swore off from profanity early this morning i was on deck in the peaceful dawn the calm of holy dawn went down dressed bathed put on white linen shaved a long hot troublesome job and no profanity then started to breakfast remembered my tonic first time in three months without being told poured it into measuring glass held bottle in one hand 
it in the other, the cork in my teeth, reached up and got a tumbler, measuring glass slipped out of my fingers, caught it, poured out another dose, first setting the tumbler on washstand, just got it poured, ship lurched, heard a crash behind me, it was the tumbler, broken into millions of fragments, but the bottom hunk whole, picked it up to throw out the open port, threw out the measuring glass instead. Then I released my voice. Mrs. Clemens behind me in the door. Don't reform any more. It is not an improvement. This is a good time to read up on scientific matters and improve the mind, for about us is the peace of the great deep. It invites to dreams, to study, to reflection. Seventeen days ago this ship sailed out of Calcutta, and ever since, barring a day or two in Ceylon, there has been nothing in sight but the tranquil blue sea and a cloudless blue sky. All down the Bay of Bengal it was so. It is still so in the vast solitudes of the Indian Ocean, seventeen days of heaven. In eleven more it will end. There will be one passenger who will be sorry. One reads all day long in this delicious air. Today I have been storing up knowledge from Sir John Lubbock about the ant. The thing which has struck me most and most astonished me is the ant's extraordinary powers of identification, memory of his friend's person. I will quote something which he says about Formica Fusca. Formica Fusca is not something to eat. It's the name of a breed of ants. He does quote at great length, and he transferred most of it later to his book. In another note he says, In the past year have read Vicar of Wakefield and some of Jane Austen, thoroughly artificial, have begun Children of the Abbey. It begins with this impromptu from the sentimental heroine, Hail, sweet asylum of my infancy, content and innocence reside beneath your humble roof, and charity unboastful of the good it renders. Here, unmolested, may I wait till the rude storm of sorrow is overblown, and my father's arms are again extended to receive me. Has the earmarks of preparation. They were at the island of Mauritius by the middle of April, that curious bit of land mainly known to the world in the romance of Paul and Virginia, a story supposed by some in Mauritius to be a part of the Bible. They rested there for a fortnight and then set sail for South Africa on the ship Arundel Castle. 
which he tells us is the finest boat he has seen in those waters. It was the end of the first week in May when they reached Durban and felt that they were nearing home. One more voyage, and they would be in England, where they had planned for Susie and Jean to join them. Mrs. Clemens, eager for letters, writes of her disappointment in not finding one from Susie. The reports from Quarry Farm had been cheerful, and there had been small snapshot photographs which were comforting. But her mother heart could not be entirely satisfied that Susie did not send letters. She had a vague fear that some trouble, some illness, had come to Susie, which made her loath to write. Susie was, in fact, far from well, though no one, not even Susie herself, suspected how serious was her condition. Mrs. Clemens writes of her own hopefulness, but adds that her husband is often depressed. Mr. Clemens has not as much courage as I wish he had, but, poor old darling, he has been pursued with colds and inabilities of various sorts. Then he is so impressed with the fact that he is sixty years old. Naturally I combat that thought all I can, trying to make him rejoice that he is not seventy. He does not believe that any good thing will come, but that we must all our lives live in poverty. He says he never wants to go back to America. I cannot think that things are as black as he paints them, and I trust that if I get him settled down for work in some quiet English village, he will get back much of his cheerfulness. In fact, I believe he will, because that is what he wants to do, and that is the work that he loves the platform he likes for the two hours that he is on it, but all the rest of the time it grinds him, and he says he is ashamed of what he is doing. Still, in spite of this sad undercurrent, we are having a delightful trip. People are so nice, and with people Mr. Clemens seems cheerful. Then the ocean trips are a great rest for him." Mrs. Clemens and Clara remained at the hotel in Durban while Clemens made his platform trip to the South African cities. It was just at that time when the Transvaal invasion had been put down, when the Jameson raid had come to grief, and John Harry's Hammond, chief of the reformers, and fifty or more supporters, were lying in the jail at Pretoria under various sentences, ranging from one to fifteen years. Hammond himself having received the latter award. Mrs. Hammond was a fellow Missourian. Clemens had known her in America. He went with her now to see the prisoners, who seemed to be having a pretty good time, expecting to be pardoned presently, pretending to regard their confinement mainly as a joke. Clemens, writing of it to Twitchell, said, A Boer guard was at my elbow all the time, but was courteous and polite, only he barred the way in the compound, quadrangle or big open court, and wouldn't let me cross a white mark that was on the ground. The death line, one of the prisoners called it. Not in earnest, though, I think. I found that I had met Hammond once when he was a Yale senior and a guest of General Franklin's. I also found that I had known Captain Maine intimately thirty-two years ago, one of the 
English prisoners had heard me lecture in London twenty-three years ago. These prisoners are strong men, prominent men, and I believe they are all educated men. They are well off. Some of them are wealthy. They have a lot of books to read. They play games and smoke, and for a while they will be able to bear up in their captivity, but not for long, not for very long, I take it. I am told they have times of deadly brooding and depression. I made them a speech sitting down. It just happened so. I don't prefer that attitude. Still, it has one advantage. It is only a talk. It doesn't take the form of a speech. I advised them at considerable length to stay where they were. They would get used to it and like it presently. If they got out, they would only get in again somewhere else by the look of their countenances and I promised to go and see the President, and do what I could to get him to double their jail terms. We had a very good sociable time till the permitted time was up, and a little over, and we outsiders had to go. I went again today, but the Reverend Mr. Gray had just arrived, and the warden, a genial elderly boar named Duplessis, explained that his orders wouldn't allow him to admit saint and sinner at the same time, particularly on a Sunday. Duplessis descended from the Huguenot fugitives, you see, of two hundred years ago, but he hasn't any French left in him now, all Dutch. Clemens did visit President Kruger a few days later, but not for the purpose explained. John Hayes Hammond, in a speech not long ago, 1911, told how Mark Twain was interviewed by a reporter after he left the jail, and when the reporter asked if the prisoners were badly treated, Clemens had replied that he didn't think so, adding, As a matter of fact, a great many of these gentlemen have fared far worse in the hotels and mining camps of the west said hammond in his speech the result of this was that the interview was reported literally and a leader appeared in the next morning's issue protesting against such lenience the privations already severe enough were considerably augmented by that remark and it required some three or four days search on the part of some of our friends who were already outside of jail to get hold of Mark Twain and have him go and explain to Kruger that it was all a joke. Clemens made as good a plea to Oom um Paul as he could, and in some degree may have been responsible for the improved treatment and the shortened terms of the unlucky reformers. They did not hurry away from South Africa. Clemens gave many readings and paid a visit to the Kimberley mines. His notebook recalls how poor Riley twenty-five years before, had made his fatal journey. It was the 14th of July, 1896, a year to a day since they left Elmira, 
that they sailed by the steamer Norman for England, arriving at Southampton the 31st. It was from Southampton that they had sailed for America fourteen months before. They had completed the circuit of the globe. End of chapter 192 Following the Equator Read by John Greenman